He allegedly fabricated complaints from actual employees to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, step one, fabricated a law firm by the name of Kirk James and Associates that then would uh, handle fake remediation uh, talks and settlement talks with U.S. Express and these employees over these fake complaints. Uh, then he reached confidential settlements with the uh, alleged fake law firm over the fake employee complaints. Had U.S. Express cut checks to Kirkland James and the employees, intercepted the checks, forged the employees' names on the, the check signatures, and then diverted the settlement money into his own account. That was the wild and wacky tale of Glenn Ray Fagan, which we're going to take up on this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for yet another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today we go from, I'm not sure if we call it the bizarre to perhaps the absurd, as Matt stumbled upon a, a fascinating story of a lawyer busted on a fake complaint scam. So, Matt, first of all, welcome and uh, tell everyone what you are doing this week. Yeah, sure, Tom. So uh, we are live, or at least I am, from Chicago uh, at the Institute of Internal Auditors having its global annual conference. Uh, this is its first live event in three years, so congratulations to the IIA for getting back into the swing of things. We probably have about 1,100 people here, and uh, interestingly enough, the IIA people say that they thought they could probably have had another thousand attendees here in person if U.S. embassies around the world had been fully staffed to uh, grant visa uh, requests. There's an awful lot of international people from Asia, Africa, Europe, the, the whole world. You name it, we've got people here. Um, and kudos to the IIA for getting back on the road. Yes, I'm not going to ask what drew you to this case because that's going to come very obvious. But how did you stumble upon it? And why don't you tell our fans about the incredible facts of this case? Yeah, more like what is there not to be intrigued by this case? Uh, this is the story of a lawyer by the name of Glenn Ray Fagan, uh, who had been in the late 2010s associate general counsel of a trucking company publicly traded called U.S. Express, and it uh, has about 1.5 to 1.7 billion in annual revenue over the last five years or so, not an insignificant company. And uh, Mr. Fagan, while he was associate GC there in the late 2010s, he was in charge of the employee complaints hotline, allegations of employee misconduct, and uh, investigating uh, employment-related litigation and disputes like that. Uh, while he was there, according to the Georgia Supreme Court, we'll get to them momentarily, uh, he allegedly fabricated complaints from actual employees to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, step one, fabricated a law firm by the name of Kirk James and Associates that then would uh, handle fake remediation uh, talks and settlement talks with U.S. Express and these employees over these fake complaints. Uh, then he reached confidential settlements with 
the uh, alleged fake law firm over the fake employee complaints, had U.S. Express cut checks to Kirkland James and the employees, intercepted the checks, forged the employees' names on the, the check signatures, and then diverted the settlement money into his own account. So ultimately, this is an embezzlement scheme. He did this two times, and he netted about $41,000. Um, and it's just preposterous. The whole thing from start to finish was fake. Fake complaints leading to fake remediation talks with the fake law firm, leading to a fake settlement. I suppose the checks were real under fake orders from Mr. Fagan to cut the checks. And then he diverted them and um, stole the money by signing fake signatures on the uh, settlement documents. And he wound up embezzling $41,000. Eventually, this all came to light because Mr. Fagan in 2019, he left U.S. Express. Then the EEOC called the company up to talk about these complaints. And the company said, what are you talking about? Uh, all of this comes out. It's all very nasty. Um, Mr. Fagan then eventually got disbarred in the state of Tennessee, where U.S. Express is based. Um, he had left the company. He did pay back the $41,000 plus interest. And because he was a licensed attorney in the state of Georgia, that led to disbarment attorney uh, hearings in Georgia as well. Finally, about 10 days ago, the U.S., uh, the Georgia Supreme Court did disbar him. And uh, then I came across the disbarment order. And like, you have to marvel at this. I, it's it's astonishing misconduct. The sheer brazenness of this is uh, is something to behold. So before we have to answer the question of how this works into compliance or how the compliance function is involved, I have to start a discussion on internal controls because it seemed to me we have no segregation of duties. We have no oversight. It's unclear if there were controls in place and they were simply overridden. But when you have someone who can essentially open a new file and then close that file, all the while paying the alleged parties in that file uh, with apparently authority, uh, their own uh, level of authority, you seem to have a recipe for a complete breakdown in internal controls. Yeah, and this is why the the other reason why this case caught my eye because first off, it catches your eye just on the facts alone. You're like, what on earth? You know, we've seen some pretty crazy stories of compliance officers gone wild. I would say this ranks right up there with some of the best. But that aside, there are some very serious internal control questions here about how something like this would happen, could happen. Um, we could, and maybe we, in a moment, we can talk about how would this look, say, if it happened in the accounting department as opposed to the compliance department. But the lesson for compliance officers or maybe any internal audit executives who are also listening would be to think through what sort of segregation of duties should you have within the compliance function to make sure that no single person does have so much authority that they can create this uh, opportunity for fraud and then execute on it. Um, you know, it, he only did this twice, but he, you know, possibly you could do something like this repeatedly. And for a company of the size of U.S. Express, 1.7 billion in revenue, 20,000 here, 41,000 dollars in total, 14,000 there, it's not a material amount of money at any given point. 
But you could certainly see an embezzlement scheme like this lasting for quite a while if it's left unchecked. So how would you structure your compliance program so that you don't wind up with this kind of fraud risk? Uh, one thing I could not tell from your blog post, Matt, if you were able to determine how the EEOC caught wind of this, uh, because I have to assume there was no EEOC complaint filed. There was. Uh, ah, so there was a separate compl- EEOC complaint, and then he forged that notice as well? Yes, that is my uh, reading of the facts there, is that uh, there were several, two employees in question, actual employees at U.S. Express, who had nothing to do with this. They did not know that their names were being used, but he drafted an EEOC complaint, sent it off to the EEOC, and then uh, also created this sham law firm to act as the employee's, I I guess, legal representation, which he then engaged with and did this sham remediation settlement. But eventually he left. And then about six months later, the EEOC went back to U.S. Express to, I guess, close the, the file on this complaint that had been filed with them. And U.S. Express then said, what complaint are you talking about? We have no record of it or anything like that. But that is how it all came to pass. He he filed everything uh, according to Hoyle. He even had a proper W-9 for the fake law firm he was using to create sham remediation talks for the settlements that he then embezzled. Uh, and he provided the W-9 documentation to his accounting team to say, please cut the check to this fake law firm. And uh, just astonishing. Like I said, a very well thought out fraud scheme that was executed here, but a preposterous one. Uh, I think we have to conclude there was intent here. (laughs) Uh, Matt, you pointed out a few other uh, insane corporate scandals where compliance professionals or others went crazy on their jobs, as you put it. Uh, You talked about the former corporate secretary at Apple busted for insider trading, the Goldman Sachs compliance analyst busted for also busted for insider trading and never forget the former SEC attorney indicted for stealing confidential information from the SEC itself so he could set himself up as a chief compliance officer. Really, all of those uh, also point to, in addition to the internal controls issues that we talked about, why performing, frankly, some basic due diligence is so critical to uh, down to a level of employee that's going to have signature authority or confidential information that they can take advantage of. Well, I would even distinguish this case from those others, because those others were the employee taking confidential information outside of the enterprise and then running their own private scam please give me a job or I'm going to do open an E-Trade account and do insider trading with this confidential information. So that, I mean, that's misconduct and it's egregious because these were compliance professionals who should have done better, who did have a higher duty and they ignored it. This, however, was the employee, Mr. Fagan, using the company's own internal process to commit a scam. Um, So I had mentioned earlier, what would this have looked like if an accounting employee had run it. And Tom, you kind of touched on it earlier. Uh, This would be like the chief accounting officer of a company, number one, onboarding a new vendor, then issuing a purchase order to that vendor, then receiving the invoice back from that vendor, and then processing payment to that vendor. All one person 
the chief accounting officer doing that. That's what Fagan's scheme would look like if he weren't a lawyer, but he were in the corporate accounting function. Now, that's a terrible financial process that violates segregation of duties, all sorts of ways. An audit firm would immediately say, no way, that's a material weakness, stop it. The audit committee of the board would probably have that chief accounting officer hanged in the parking lot as a warning to others. Do not do something this bad. But it's worth remembering why exactly is that a terrible financial process? What's wrong with it? Well, because it exists as a closed loop where there isn't any natural point in the process for somebody else to be involved, to observe what's going on and say, yes, this transaction is legitimate or no, this this isn't bogus. get, Get rid of it. There wasn't any natural point for others to be involved. And that's what segregation of duties is all about. That's the concept that a compliance officer or maybe an audit executive would want to keep straight in your head as you're looking at, say, your internal complaints process. Ideally, you want the internal complaint, the investigation, the documentation, the case management, the resolution. You want it all to be one big seamless thing. All of the IT systems and applications you use should generally be able to work with each other so you can not have spreadsheets and silos and whatnot. But that's only the technology should be seamless. The people doing it, that should have some silos. You know, you should have one person maybe in charge of the intake, somebody else in charge of the investigation, and then maybe a third person who decides what the disciplinary action would be. That's not really what happened here with Fagan and U.S. Express. He decided the whole thing. He took in the complaint. He allegedly ran the remediation. He allegedly decided what the discipline would be, which is really just a settlement number. And then he issued or he ordered the payment to be issued, the check to be issued. So he had this unified approach that was great for running a scam. That's the sort of thing compliance officers or anyone else looking at the compliance function needs to think about. How do you break up the people element of it so that somewhere along the line, somebody else can look at the process and say, yes, this is legitimate. No, it's not. And uncover these scams. That's good segregation of duties. So I was going to use the example of the supply chain. You would never allow someone to onboard someone to your vendor master list then allow them to receive invoices for the services or alleged services rendered and then approve payment and then send that payment out. That would be viewed as uh, not simply suboptimal, but a disaster within the supply chain. Yet uh, we didn't have that sort of robust internal controls and segregation duties here. And I think uh, the really the lesson I'm drawing from this podcast, even more than I drew from your blog post, is those segregation of duties need to be inputted into any place you're going to have an out, either an input of uh, a new vendor or a new p- third party, I should say, into your organization and an outflow of cash to that third party. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that uh, I think that is very much what happened here with Mr. Fagan. You know, one point that I think might be worth keeping in mind is that from a financial auditor's perspective, Yes, if they saw this process as it was designed, they would immediately flag it as being material weakness. That's a terrible process. But go back to what we said before. What he was doing was not a material amount of money for a $1.7 billion company, which isn't even that big of a company. But 
it gets to the uh, issue, really, that you can have these frauds existing that are not material. Therefore, an auditor might not see them because it's not a lot of money. But we've only been talking about accounting fraud right now. If you were doing something similar for bribery and corruption schemes, again, let's all remember, there isn't a materiality threshold for an FCPA violation. If this sort of thing happened and he wasn't using it for confidential settlements, was it using it for slush funds for the assistant minister of whatever in an overseas market, you would have a big FCPA problem on your hand. So much as we may or may not get hung up in the money involved, it's just good to understand what the segregation of duties is like, particularly for FCPA risks and corruption. It doesn't matter what the the amount of money is, the fact that you have this flawed approach, this flawed design can lead to some very significant FCPA compliance consequences. And we've seen that all the time. You know, you wind up paying an enormous amount of money for a relatively small amount of bribes that were actually diverted from the company and paid out. So I was uh, trying to find whether U.S. Express is a U.S. publicly listed company or not, I uh, can't tell at this point. It doesn't look like it, but if it is, uh, they may want to walk down and uh, self-disclose something to the Securities and Exchange Commission. I mean, they they could, or they, like I said, this isn't a violation of the FCPA or something else. I mean, certainly it's an embarrassment. Uh, it's something that should come up in an audit, but is a $41,000 error, uh, is that material to a $1.7 billion company? Probably not. No, I don't see why it would be. It's a minuscule amount of money. But it is a material weakness in your financial processes. That should be disclosed. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's going to result in an FCPA enforcement action, although it will result in an embarrassing 8K disclosure and the internal control and procedure disclosures you have to make every year until you get this fixed. Um, that's the sort of thing that companies would need to think about. I I don't know that you would see an FCPA, an SEC enforcement action over this small amount of money, but uh, if this had gone on for a period of years or if we were talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars or potentially millions of dollars that were being stolen in sham payouts for sham employee complaints, that could lead to an SEC enforcement action. That's poor internal controls. That would be a material amount of money. Um, but you know, it depends. If you're an auditor who's listening, you're thinking about materiality. If you're a compliance officer who's listening, you're thinking more about legal violations and how they happen. And with the FCPA, you can have a violation over a very small amount of money, and it can still give you an awful lot of heartburn. So they are a U.S. publicly listed company. They have SEC filings. My quick review of their 8Ks did not indicate uh, any report of um, that their internal controls or uh, financial statements uh, had weaknesses, but under the FCPA, a failure in internal controls uh, does, does not require a bribe, and the SEC can separately prosecute or enforce the FCPA for uh, not material weaknesses in internal controls, but failures of internal controls. So uh, U.S. Express may want to <coughs> talk to uh, a SEC lawyer about uh, disclosing this before uh, the SEC hears this podcast or read your blog post and uh, sends a little letter asking about uh, material weaknesses in your internal controls. 
Well, you know, Tom, that's maybe one final point to ask about Mr. Fagan here is, number one, why hasn't he been criminally charged with anything? Uh, And number two, what's going to happen here? All that he has suffered is disbarment. Now, apparently, when Georgia's Supreme Court did hire a special master to investigate uh, Mr. Fagan, he at first did not reply to the proceedings. So the Georgia Supreme Court took them as an admission of fact. Eventually, he did reach the special master, and he only said that he did not wish to uh, challenge the findings, and he's not going to practice law anymore. Uh, Amen to that, Mr. Fagan. Thank you. But we still have great questions here about where's the accountability? You know, I mean, he was doing a, a shocking sort of a thing for somebody who is a really a gatekeeper of a company. And so far, all that's happened is that he's been disbarred. There's no other talk about civil penalties, criminal prosecution, not at the state level, not at the federal level. Even the Georgia Supreme Court said they are not really clear on why he hasn't faced criminal charges yet. Who knows how this might be resolved? But at the moment, it's just weird. Uh, In the state where these frauds occurred, the great state of Tennessee, they disbarred uh, him for six years. Yeah. So uh, perhaps I want to go north across the state line after six years and try and practice law again. Who knows? Well, Matt, uh, fortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but it's been a, a great uh, and fun episode in the wacky, wild world of fraud, conflicts of interest and compliance. I can't wait to see what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I've linked to Matt's blog post on this subject matter in our show notes. I'd like to tell you about a great new show on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files, where with my co-host, Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and international anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in the modern era of anti-corruption and FCPA enforcement. It's a great retrospective on some of the most significant enforcement actions So check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.